All right. Good evening. All right. Can you hear me now? Can y'all hear me? Can you hear me back there? Russ, can you hear me? All right. Good deal. How's everybody tonight? I think we're good. We're good. I hit record on it, by the way. Yeah, okay. All right. Does everyone have a handout? Is there anyone that does not have a handout? All right. Well, good to see you here tonight. I'm Wade. I'm the pastor here, and uh, I lead an open Bible study. By that, we mean that if this is your first time here, you can just jump right in. You won't feel behind because we're just taking one psalm at a time, and so you can get something out of it no matter uh, at what point you've come in. So you can turn your Bibles to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. As you can tell, we've been in Psalms for a while because we've been taking them one at a time. We started with verse 1, I mean chapter 1. We made it all the way to Psalm 73. So we are um, excited uh, about studying Psalm 73 tonight. This is one of my top five favorite Psalms. I know I say that so many times. There's probably I've said it more than five times, but I love Psalm 73. I really do. It is, it is powerful. You're going to see tonight how powerful this Psalm uh, is um, by way of announcement, just uh, make sure you're staying plugged into all that's going on in the life of the church. Uh, there are October prayer guides available for missions. Uh, they're right here on the missions wall. Uh, we're going to ask you locally to pray for our fall festival that's upcoming October 31st, which is a major outreach to the community. Uh, we uh, pray for our national partners, uh, praying for Spearfish and Sturgis, South Dakota, Hope Church in Las Vegas as they minister in the aftermath of the tragedy out there. Then the other side of the card, there's international needs. You can pray for our own uh, Trey and Megan, uh, Clinny, um, and uh, Lottie Moon Christmas offering uh, goal, which is a big goal, and then some other teams that are that are getting ready to leave. We have a team, uh, two teams right now. We have a team in South Asia, and we have a team in the Middle East right now. Uh, some of your Brothers and sisters in Christ are overseas serving uh, in the name of Jesus. So pray for them. Then we have a team getting ready to go to Western Europe uh, next week. So uh, those are all needs. And there's an unreached people group on here. The Balak people of Pakistan, primary religion, Islam, uh, population, listen to this, 8,470,000 people in this one people group. And 0.00% evangelical. That means there are no known Christians in that group, and uh, they need to hear about Jesus. So we want to pray for that uh, people group. Hey, by the way, let's, let's do a little missions education night. How do you pray for an unreached people group? How, how would you pray for someone like that? Eight, over eight million, almost eight and a half million people, no Christians there. How would you pray for a people, group of people like that? Any thoughts? Yeah, was it Luke 10 2? Uh, that we pray that the Lord of the harvest would thrust out laborers into the harvest. So we certainly need people that will be sent out to go. So, yeah, that's a great way to pray. Pray that laborers will be sent out to engage these people um, with the gospel. How else can we pray for unreached people groups? 
Okay? Yes, that the Spirit would be working, that their, that their hearts would be ready to be good soil for the seed of the gospel. You know, Matthew 13, Jesus shares the parable of the sower and the, the, the farmer sowing the seed is a picture of sowing the Word of God into people's lives. And there are four different types of soils that the seed falls on. The first three, the seed does not take root and bear fruit for different reasons. But there's one soil, the last one, the seed finds good soil, it, it, it grows, and it begins to bear fruit, which is a picture of a receptive heart. So yeah, you pray for receptive hearts. Well, how else do you pray for an unreached people group? What's the end game? What are you praying for? What do you want to see happen there among those unreached people groups? Salvation? How's that going to happen? What's a practical way to pray for a people group? Spirit of the Lord, speak to their hearts, right? Here's the way I pray. Um, I pray that the Lord would move so that every town and village would have a gospel preaching church in it. So if, if, if someone's living in a, a town or a village or a city, they would have access to the gospel through a gospel preaching church. So, that's, so you're getting kind of more tangible now. So just, God bless these people. God, would you move in such a way that churches would be started and that every, every town, every village, every city would have gospel preaching churches, and whether it be home churches or underground churches or you know, churches with buildings, whatever the case may be, uh, we want groups of people who are Christians united together that are committed to reaching that area with the gospel. So just some thoughts about how you pray for, for unreached people groups. You know, one good way to pray is that an unreached people group will one day have its classification changed. In other words, there'll be so, more, so many Christians in it, you can no longer call it an unreached people group. That'd be cool, wouldn't it? Uh, and so, you know, there are people groups out there, they're known as predominantly Christian. So wouldn't it be cool one day if we were sitting around and you read about the uh, Balak people and they're primarily Christian. Wouldn't that be cool? Uh, and so that, that is the goal. So uh, let's pray together and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name. We're grateful, Lord, for this opportunity to gather, to focus upon you. And we pray that you would, Lord, bless our time together, encourage us, strengthen us. Lord, help us to understand your word. And uh, God, give us the inclination to respond to what you show us. God, I pray that you would change our lives through your word today. And we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're journeying through the Psalms. And the Psalms are wonderful. And the Psalms are, in actuality, a collection of hymns uh, written by different people that were intended to be used in the corporate worship of the Hebrew people, the Israelites. And so the book of Psalms is, in reality, a hymn book. Just like if you grew up in a church that had a Baptist hymnal or, a, or some, some sort of hymn book, this is the Hebrew hymn book. This is what they used in corporate worship. So there's a poetic element to them and there is a, a theme that is woven throughout these psalms. If you had to kind of sum up what the psalms are about or what theme is continually being presented through the psalms, uh, I love the words from Kendall Easley. He sums it up well. He writes, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so the psalms remind us that when times are good, God deserves our praise and God deserves our trust because he's the only one that we can count on. And when times are bad, when times are difficult, God deserves our praise, God deserves our trust. Amen? 
And we're reminded of that over and over and over through the Psalms. And they're powerful. I mean, people love the Psalms. I, I don't know that I've ever come across an ardent Christ follower that says, I just hate the Psalms. They just, they just don't speak to me. I just don't get it. I, you know, I've never heard that from someone that really loves the Lord. Because if you love the Lord and you read the Psalms, I'm telling you, they, they will stir your heart. And, and John Piper makes mention of that. He says, the Psalms are songs. They are poems. They are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. That's why we love the Psalms, right? Because we resonate with the emotions we find in the Psalms. And by the way, you name the emotion, you can find it somewhere in the Psalms. I mean, good and bad. There, there are some joyful emotions that you can... Um, connect with in the Psalms, and there are some emotions that are, um, that are coming from people who are really struggling, as we will see um, tonight. So, Psalm 73 is interesting because it's a psalm about what you should do when life doesn't make sense. What you should do, how you should feel, how you should process uh, life uh, being perplexing. Now, a couple of just kind of uh, housekeeping things before we jump into Psalm 73. First of all, notice there, right before the, the big number 73, uh, and after the last verse in Psalm 72, uh, the Bible says, Book 3. Everybody see that? Book 3. All right? Uh, the, the 150 chapters, or the 150 Psalms, are divided up into five different books. All right? So we've made it through Book 1, Book 2. We are starting Book 3. Book 3... Uh, entails Psalm 73 through Psalm 89. And this is just kind of anecdotal, but uh, I believe the most neglected Psalms are found in Book 3. In other words, um, you probably won't find a lot of familiarity in Book 3 because these Psalms aren't mentioned a lot. Now, a lot of, you'll see a lot, you know, a lot of Psalms in uh, Book 1, Book 2 are very popular Psalms, Psalms you know well, Book 4, Book 5. But book three is kind of stuck there in the middle, and, and you just don't hear a lot about the Psalms in book three, and so they're fascinating to, to study. As a matter of fact, I think uh, years ago, I'd actually preached through the Psalms of book three just because I wanted to familiarize um, the church with those Psalms. And if you were here for that, I apologize, you'll hear some of the same things again. Um, and if you remember my sermons, then I'm impressed, all right? Um, now, 11 of the 17 psalms in book 3 are attributed to a man named Asaph. One of the psalms in book 3 is attributed to David, three to the sons of Korah, one to Heman, and another to Ethan. Now, who are Asaph, Heman, and Ethan? You've heard of David. Who are these other dudes? Well, Asaph, Heman, and Ethan were Levite musicians in David's day. They helped to lead the worship. They were the, they were the Travises of of the, the Hebrew people back in these days. They, they helped to lead people in corporate worship. You can read about that in 1 Chronicles 15, 17, and 19, or 1 Chronicles 16, 4 uh, through 5, and verse 7. It mentions Asaph, Heman, and Ethan. And so these music leaders eventually got to the point where they were, wanted to write songs. And they wrote some songs, wrote some hymns, and we find them here. Most of them from those three are found in book three. So they're, they're fascinating. And in this psalm, we're going to discuss... Um, what, what we're to do when life doesn't make sense. So let's just read for a moment. Psalm 73, 
It says there a psalm of Asaph. Again, he was a worship leader, okay, among ancient Israel. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So it starts off great, right? He sounds positive. He sounds like he's, you know, he's, he's encouraged. Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. And so he's, de- he's struggling with what he sees uh, in the lives of the wicked. So it starts off, you know, in a, in a challenging way. Asaph's struggling here because life is perplexing. It doesn't make sense. And, 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 and uh, we're going to walk through Asaph's thoughts. So, three, three headings as we discuss Psalm 73. First of all, in this psalm, we see Asaph's troubled heart. His troubled heart. Asaph was having a spiritual crisis. He says, I don't understand what I observe happening all around me. He says in verse 2, As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My, my steps had nearly slipped. In other words, he said, I was struggling spiritually. I was struggling in my relationship with God. I was about to, to fall flat on my face. Why? He says, I was envious of the arrogant. Why was Asaph having a spiritual crisis? Because he saw the arrogant and the wicked prospering in their lives. The arrogant and the wicked prospering in their lives. Look what he says. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, verse 3. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, as people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And so, Asaph's looking around, and he sees people that disregard the Lord. And they're arrogant, and they're wicked, and they're thriving. And Asaph says, I I just don't get it. I don't get why these guys are uh, ungodly, and yet they're doing so well. Matter of fact, he calls them, he calls them fat and sleek in verse 4. Now, in this time, fat wasn't a put-down. Uh, in this time, if you had some weight, it was an indicator that you had some prosperity. And so he's saying, look, they, they have prosperity. They, 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 they have all that they want, all that, all that they need, all that they desire. They have it all, even though... They are wicked. He just doesn't understand what he's seeing. Verse 12, these are the wicked, always at ease, increasing in riches. And so he's having a spiritual crisis because the arrogant and the wicked are prospering in their lives. You ever wondered, you ever seen somebody, maybe a famous athlete who's ungodly or a movie star or a politician or, or somebody that just does not love the Lord and yet... Their life looks just, it just looks just great. They've got it made. Man, they got all the money they could ask for. They're popular. Their life looks fun. And you look and think, why are they thriving? And it gets really difficult when you sometimes compare your difficulties to the wicked's prosperity. And that's what comes next in this psalm. He was living for the Lord and experiencing great difficulty. Look in verse 13. 
All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. You know what he's saying here? He said, I've tried to live for you, God. I've tried to do the right thing. I've tried to live a righteous life, and yet I'm going through great hardship. So here's what I see Asaph is saying. I see the wicked, thriving, prosperous, and I look at my life, I'm trying to do the right thing, and I'm really, really struggling. Head scratcher, right? Perplexing. It doesn't make sense. Life doesn't always make sense. He's trying to figure this out. And his observation led to some profound questions. Now, these questions aren't asked uh, explicitly in the text, but you can, you can hear them from his heart. The first question is, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked prosper? Jeremiah asked that question. Listen to what it says in, you don't have to turn there, but Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1. Jeremiah 12, verse 1. Jeremiah says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Jeremiah the prophet had the same question. God, I'm preaching against wickedness, and yet I see the wicked doing really, really well, and I don't get it. And so this question, why do the wicked prosper? You know, a lot of times we ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? But an equally perplexing question is, why do good things happen to bad people? You ever thought about that? Why do good things happen to bad people? That's what the psalmist is saying here. I, I've, tried to, I've, I've tried to do my best, and I'm, I'm struggling, but the wicked, they are thriving. Here's another question. Is godliness really worthwhile, or is it just a waste of time? Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. All of this effort and this striving in trying to do the right thing and serve the Lord and obey the commandments, it's all been a big waste of time because I'm struggling and the guy that's ignoring the Lord is really prospering. Is is holiness, is living for Jesus, is it just a big waste of time? Is there any point to it all? That's what the, the psalmist is asking here. And the third question is, is God really in control? I mean, if this is true, the, the, the wicked are prospering, the, the righteous are struggling. Is God really in control of all that? Look what it says in verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Here's what he's saying. If I would have uh, thought out loud, if I would have had these thoughts out loud around some of your children, Lord, it would shake their faith. They heard me musing and and postulating and thinking through these things, they might think, well, he's got a point. Is God really in control? Why do you see the wicked doing well and the righteous struggling? Why do you see that? Is God really in control? And so, again, those questions aren't aren't asked explicitly in the text. They're asked in other places in the Bible. But they're not explicitly in the text, but but you can just hear the heartbeat of, of Asaph here, wondering why these things are transpiring. And if if we're honest, and if we really are observers of what's happening around us, we can find life to be a head-scratcher, can't we? It just doesn't always make sense. John Calvin mentions this. He writes, As to ourselves, experience shows how slight impressions we have of the providence of God. 
We no doubt all agree in admitting that the world is governed by the hand of God. In other words, if I said, is God in control? We'd all say, yes, amen, God's in control. But were this truth deeply rooted in our hearts, Calvin writes, our faith would be distinguished by far greater steadiness and perseverance in surmounting the temptations with which we are assailed in adversity. The ungodly, for the most part, triumph, and although they deliberately deliberately stir up God to anger and provoke his vengeance, yet from his sparing them, it seems as if they had done nothing amiss in deriding him. They will never be called to account for it. On the other hand, the righteous pinched with poverty, oppressed with many troubles, harassed by multiplied wrongs, covered with shame and reproach, groan and sigh, and in proportion to the earnestness with which they exert themselves in endeavoring to do good to all men, is the liberty with uh, with which the wicked have the effrontery, which means shameless boldness, to take in abusing their patience. When such is the state of matters, where shall we find the person who is not sometimes tempted and importuned by the unholy suggestion that the affairs of the world roll on at random, and as we say, are governed by chance? He's saying even the person that believes God is in control, their faith in that can be shaken when they see things that just don't always add up. That's what Calvin's saying there. Even worship leaders like Asaph, he was the guy leading worship for Israel. And he's really struggling, right? And he's being honest because he writes a song about it. Man, this was a song to be sung in corporate worship. Can you imagine singing a song on that Sunday? Oh God, why are the rich people uh, wicked? And why is the ungodly entertainer doing great you know what you know can you imagine singing a song like that that's that's what this that's what this is all about so in this psalm it, it begins with asaph's troubled heart he's just being honest about how he feels but that's not how the psalm ends the psalm ends with asaph's trusting heart asaph's trusting heart look in verse 25 of psalm 73 and this is where it just gets awesome psalm 73 verse 25 Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. How long? Forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You see the difference between the beginning and ending of the psalm? He starts off with a troubled heart. He he just doesn't get it. He's a little disillusioned by life. At the end of the psalm, God, it's so good that you're near to me. You're my refuge. You're my portion. I get you. You're awesome. And, And he ends the psalm with this trusting heart. So here's the question. What happened? Well, look at the what the trusting heart consists of. First of all, Asaph rejoices in this relationship with God, verse 25 through 26. He says there, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven uh, but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. In other words, Asaph saying, I get God. In the midst of all the craziness, I get God. I have a relationship with God. Now, you've heard me say this before, but if you have nothing, but you have the Lord, you have everything. And if you have everything, but you don't have the Lord, you have nothing. That ultimately matters. Amen? And, and Asaph here is saying, I have the Lord. A relationship with Him. And, and then this trusting heart says, it expresses his steadfast confidence in God. Look in verse 28. 
I've made the Lord God my refuge. He's the one I run to when times get hard. He's the one that watches over me and protects me. He's the one that I trust. The, 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 the idea of God being our refuge is to trust God. That's what that idea means. He's our fortress, our shelter, the one we run to and, and trust in times of difficulty. And then Asaph desires to tell others about God. Look in verse 28. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So Asaph says, I want to be at a point in my life where I'm enjoying my relationship with you and I'm telling others about you. And so the, the psalm begins with a troubled heart. It ends with a, with a trusting heart. I mean, these words are awesome words of faith, right? So what happened? How did Asaph go from a troubled heart to a trusting heart. And how can you and I go from a troubled heart to a trusting heart when life doesn't make sense? Well, that leads us to the third heading. We see Asaph's turning point. At the beginning of the psalm, we see his troubled heart. At the end of the psalm, we see his trusting heart. In the middle of the psalm, we see his turning point. What, what happened in Asaph's life? Well, look what it says in verse 16. He says, when I thought how to understand this, rich people thrive, I mean, wicked people thriving, wicked people rich, godly people struggling, when I, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. That's the turning point. You know what Asaph did in the midst of his perplexed perplexity, he went to worship. That's what he did. And that's when things began to turn uh, for him. He he said, I don't want to share this with with God's children because it will upset their faith. And so he went directly to God. In the midst of his questions, in the midst of his perplexity, Asaph worships. And this is a big deal because worship brings clarity. When we worship God, we're reminded of who He is. We're reminded of the eternal truths of His Word. And, and that reality of who God is and what God says strengthens us to go out into life and begin to make sense of things from the right perspective. Wor- Listen to me. Write this down. I don't think it's in your notes. Worship brings clarity. And put like three exclamation points after that. Worship brings clarity. Worship brings clarity. Worship brings clarity. That's why it's important that you and I get together. Sundays, Wednesdays, we need to get together to just, just to refocus on what's most important. Life will chew you up and spit you out. Can I get an amen? And you can be out there in the workplace or dealing with relational issues and you're not getting encouraged. You're not being strengthened. You're not being reminded of of what's true and what's most important. You're being discouraged by the world. So it's important that you get together with, with other believers and refocus. You come to worship. Worship brings clarity. That's what he says. I didn't understand this until I went to the sanctuary and spent some time fixing my eyes upon the Lord. So, what happens when we worship? Well, when Asaph worshiped, he was reoriented to an eternal perspective. This is so important. Look in verse 17. 
He says, it was a wearisome task to understand all of this until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Then I discerned their end. And look what it says in verse 24. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. That's my life. Life's hard, but when it's all said and done, you take me to heaven. And then look what he says in verse 27. He's talking about the end of all things. He says, Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. So here's the conclusion that Asaph was reminded of when he went to worship. Don't evaluate someone's life by the here and now. Evaluate their life from an eternal perspective. So here's what he's saying. These folks over here that are ignoring you, God, living ungodly lives, and they're thriving. Yeah, it's a head-scratcher, but here's what you reminded me of. It doesn't end well. You don't want to be in this camp because it doesn't end well. The end is destruction. The end is eternal separation from God in that awful place called hell. So why would you be envious of someone that is that is headlong running towards hell? Why would you envy that? There's nothing. In, there's nothing to be emulated in that. There's nothing to be uh, jealous about. I mean, they look like they have it all, but they are every day taking another step towards eternity in hell. So why would I envy that group of people? And then he says over here. I, you know, life's hard. I'm a, I'm a believer. I'm trying to live for you, and, and, and life can be difficult. But you know what? This life is short, and when it's all said and done, you take me to glory. It's going to be all worthwhile when I go to glory. The, 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 the difficulties of this world are going to seem like nothing compared to the, the glory I will receive. Says, a matter of fact, look over in Romans 8 with me very quickly. Romans chapter 8. Paul makes the same kind of comment Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Yeah, life's hard, but when you get to glory, the sufferings of this world that seem so real um, and, and, and so difficult, they're just going to fade away in the light of the glory of God. And so, back in Psalm 73, when he worshipped, he was reoriented to an eternal perspective. We should not live for the here and now. We should live for eternity. What's going to matter in eternity. Amen? And if, if you find yourself envious of those who are far from God, don't be envious. They don't have it all. The things that they are possessing don't satisfy And if they stay on that course, they will go to hell. There's nothing envious about that. There's nothing nothing to be uh, jealous about there. Secondly, when he worshipped, he was reminded that that humanity is accountable to God. Look in verse 18. Truly you set them, the wicked, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. In other words, what he's saying is this. You look at those ungodly folks and it looks like they're prospering 
and it looks like they're getting away with their behavior. And Asaph is reminded, when I went to the sanctuary, no one gets away with anything. God is the God of justice, and all of humanity will be held accountable to Him. Which, by the way, is the reason we need a Savior. You don't want to go stand before God as judge. You, you want to stand before Him as forgiver. Amen? As Savior. But if people stand before Him one day and they don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they will be judged for every wrong deed they've done here in this life. It says that over in Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne of judgment, is that they're judged according to the books that are open that have all their deeds in them. No, listen to me. No one gets away with anything in the economy of God. God is just. So why would you envy those who are far from God? They're going to experience destruction in God's judgment one day. Why envy that? Amen? Third, when he worshipped, he was reprimanded for questioning God's character. He reprimands himself when he comes to the right conclusions. Look at verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. God, my thoughts, my anger towards you. God, you're unjust. You shouldn't be like this. Are you really in control? What's the point in living for you? He repents and says, you know what, God? I was looking at things from such a narrow perspective, and I needed to go worship you to look from an eternal perspective, and I'm sorry for the ways that I question your goodness. Just because I'm struggling and a wicked person is prospering doesn't mean that you have uh, stepped down off the throne. It doesn't mean you're not good. It just means that we need to understand these things from an eternal perspective. Fourth, when he worshipped, he reveled in God's promises. Verse 21 through 24, he's talking about the promises of God. Look in uh, verse 23. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. He's reveling in God's promises. What promises? The unfailing presence of God. You hold my right hand. I like that. Uh, I'll never forget... uh, my parents allowed me and my br- brother to go with my uncle and his family to Knoxville for the World's Fair in 1981. Does that sound right? Did anybody go to the World's Fair in Knoxville? Okay, was it 81, 80, 81? Okay. Um, so I was there. So I would have been uh, five or six, something like that. And uh, I went with my older brother. My brother was six years older than me. And my parents told my brother Jeff, they said, and my brother's very conscientious, you need to understand this. Uh, he was like valedictorian, and, you know, he, you know I wasn't. So, um, he just, he, so, uh, very conscientious, I mean, he just, you know. And so, when my parents said, watch your brother, he took it to heart, and he would not let me out of my sight. We were in a crowd of people, he'd stand behind me, put his hands on my shoulder, and guide, shoulders would guide me around, and if we were crossing a road or he's taking me to the bathroom, whatever, he would grip my hand. And there were times, listen to me, there were times I didn't want to hold his hand. And there were times I would let go of his hand. But guess what? He didn't let go of my hand. He held on tight. He got me back to mom and dad safe, all right? That's the picture here. Life is hard. There are times I don't understand it. There are times, God, I want to let go of your hand, but you never let go of my hand. That's the point here. 
You're always holding on to my right hand, the unfailing presence of God. And then we see the eternal reward for God's people. Verse 24. Afterward, after you guide me with your counsel in this life, afterward you will receive me to glory that speaks of heaven. If you know Christ, when you die, it is not an end. It is simply a transition into the very presence of God. And you get to be with him forever and ever. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise and when we first begun. And so that's, that's heaven. We get to go to glory. That's a promise of God. And so when he goes to worship, he's reminded, he's reveling in, rejoicing in these promises that even though life doesn't make sense, God's made some promises that we can stand on and hold on to. And so in God's presence, Asaph was reminded that nothing done for the Lord goes unnoticed and the wicked do not escape the hand of the judge. That's what he was reminded of. By the way, look out the back window real quick. Isn't that pretty, the sky back there? Isn't that awesome? Yeah, awesome. Sorry, this quick. Uh, I love sunsets. I love sunsets. Amen. And sunrises too. Um, but when Asaph went to worship, he was reminded of what's really important. It's not about how much money somebody has or how popular or famous they are. It looks like they really have it made. Um, but they, they don't know the Lord. They don't have it made. Listen, they don't. From an eternal perspective, they don't have it made. And those things they have that you don't have doesn't mean they're happier than you. It doesn't mean they're more satisfied than you. Because the Bible says, Jesus said, that a man's life does not consist of his possessions. Jesus said it's silly to live for stuff. Because stuff will not satisfy. So why in the world would we be jealous of folks that have more stuff than us? Next time you're tempted to be jealous of someone with more stuff than you, just say, I get Jesus. I have him. And he's enough to satisfy the deepest longings of my soul. May not have much, but I have Jesus. So I have everything. Amen? That's the way we need to think. And so we see Asaph with his troubled heart. And then the end of the psalm, we see Asaph with his trusting heart. What happened? He went to worship. He went to worship, and that changed. If Psalm 73 is not a plug about church attendance, I don't know what is. You don't go to church because the preacher wants you to go to church. You go to church because it's when you find clarity for life and living. That's why it's important. I love this, uh, these words from Isaac Watts, a great hymn writer. And this is based upon Psalm 73, by the way. He wrote, I saw the wicked... Rise and felt my heart repine while haughty fools with scornful eyes in robes of honor shine. The tumults of my thought held me in dark suspense till thy house my feet were brought, till to thy house my feet were brought to learn thy justice thence. Thy word with light and power did my mistakes amend. I viewed the sinner's life before, but here I learned their end. Powerful, powerful words. So you see why I love Psalm 73? It's just really a good psalm to know, a good psalm to read when life doesn't make sense. It's good to remember in the midst of perplexing circumstances and realities, it's important to remember that, hey, God is your portion. He's holding on to your right hand and he's never going to let go. He's going to guide you continually. And hey, no matter how hard life is, when it's all said and done, you get glory. How can you lose, right? How can you lose when you get glory? 
glory. So we just bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name. We are grateful, Lord, for this opportunity to gather and talk about your word. And Lord, I do pray that you'd help us to have the the right perspective as we evaluate, uh, Lord, what we see happening all around us. We live in confusing times. We live in difficult times. Uh, Lord, there's some things that happen around us that, Lord, really uh, truly uh, are bewildering. And we don't understand them all. But we know that you're God. And we know that Jesus saves And we know that a relationship with you is what ultimately satisfies. So God, I pray you to remind us of those truths and help us to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. A couple things before we close tonight. uh, Before I run off to another meeting. But um, a couple things before we close. First of all, if you could give them a few minutes back in the back uh, teaching about uh, teaching your kids, uh, when you come in you know, early and the other folks aren't there to pick up their kids, it can be disruptive. And uh, So give them, drink a cup of coffee, sit back, relax, um, you know, uh, go check Facebook, do what you got to do. Um, but, but just let, give them about 15 more minutes to finish up back there. I usually go a little bit longer than this, but I guess I talk fast tonight. Um, so if you could do that, we would uh, very much appreciate that. By the way, you need to understand, uh, our volunteers working with our um, preschoolers and children, students are awesome and uh, really doing a great job. Um, uh, my wife's telling me she, she helps with mission friends, and, and they're teaching our little ones about uh, ministry in our world um, through our International Mission Board to deaf peoples. Uh, you know, the International Mission Board has targeted... Uh, the peoples of this earth, and they've, they've categorized peoples uh, on the earth under nine different affinities, like um, Asian peoples, African peoples. There's different affinities. Um, one of the nine affinities that IMB targets are deaf peoples. Uh, every nation has deaf people living in it, and they're, and they're hidden in plain sight, right? I mean, you see them, you don't know they're deaf, but they speak the, all, they, they all speak the the language, the sign language. And so we have, listen to this, this is cool. This, and your money is helping to fund this, by the way. Your giving through this church helps to fund people that are going and targeting deaf people. And they're actually sharing the gospel with them, leading people to Christ, starting deaf churches. We watched a video recently of them uh, having a deaf church service. It was incredible. And, and, and your, your giving is helping to, 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 to fund that. And so they're learning about stuff like that. Isn't that cool? Um, our little ones have a really... Um, they really understand missions. They really do. And uh, that's, that's pretty awesome. So um, give them a few minutes to finish up uh, their teaching back there. Second thing, I need some men to help with this. Um, the couches that you all look so comfortable on around the, the sides there, we're going to need you to get up just a moment. Um, and uh, and uh, we need to move those couches and, and these chairs. Uh, and they're really light, so a couple men can get the couch no problem and, and the chair as well. Um, but we need to move it right through that door right there. And we'll move the speaker here in a moment. Um, we're going to put it back behind the wall because we've got to get this room set up for uh, some wedding festivities going on at the building this weekend. So, guys, if you could help us just grab some of those couches. We'll move them right behind that wall, and we will go from there. Sound good? All right. Hey, uh, Sunday, uh, we finished the book of Joshua. So, I think. So, uh, Joshua 24, uh, the, the book uh, ends with three funerals. That'll bless you, won't it? 
But there's some good things for us to learn from those funerals. So we're going to talk about that on, uh, on Sunday. So be here. Bring somebody with you. Uh, have a great rest of the evening. We are dismissed. God bless you.